This is the final episode of Understanding Revelation. We finally got to the end. Appreciate everybody who has been following along with this series. It's been a really enriching experience for myself, um, just reading and studying Revelation and spending more time with it than I've ever done before. And it's really changed the way that I read the Old Testament. It's given me a new appreciation for apocalyptic literature and uh, symbolism and imagery and, and really how powerful a book Revelation is. And we said from the beginning, the book of Revelation is a book meant to encourage the church, especially in times of suffering. And it's as relevant today as it was back then in the first century. So I hope that this was an enriching experience for you as well. And that it gives you a joy, not only just to dive into Revelation yourself, um, but it gives you joy in the way that you read the entire Bible as a whole, because it is telling one coherent narrative. So in this episode, we're going to look at the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And Revelation chapter 22 is fitting in a lot of ways, because it really wraps up the cohesive narrative that begins in Genesis 1. And we're going to see how the imagery plays into showing how Revelation sums up the story of the Bible. I grew up listening to the famous Christian Christmas carol, Joy to the World, when I wasn't a Christian, and I never really grasped the meaning of the lyrics until I became a Christian. Because you hear it, and it's about joy to the world, and you think to yourself, okay, this is about general, kind, warm vibes toward people during Christmas time, Christmas cheer, all that stuff. But it wasn't until I became a Christian and I listened to the lyrics that it hit me in a new way. Listen to some of the lyrics. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is Genesis language. This song is about the gospel, the redemption of Christ to undo the curse of the fall as far as that curse is found. So Revelation 22 gives a vision of that world where the curse is lifted. If you read back in chapter 8 of Romans, Romans 8, 18 to 25, the Apostle Paul envisions a future glory that overwhelms all of his and our present sufferings. Creation itself, long under bondage and corruption to death and decay, will experience a glorious freedom. But this freedom will not come in full until God's own children receive their glory, their glorification. They're revealed as his sons of glory. So the hope that Paul sees from a distance, the Apostle John brings up close and personal in Revelation 22. This is Understanding Revelation. So John receives four visions in the book of Revelation. The first vision on Patmos, the second in heaven, the third in the wilderness, and the fourth on the mountain. The fourth vision begins midway through Revelation chapter 21 and continues until the end of the book. So John sees in this fourth vision a picture of the bride of Christ, the church, the new Jerusalem, as she will be and as she currently is. But here in the first five verses of Revelation 22, we see the church in her glorious final form at the consummation of all things. After Christ returns, and brings about the resurrection from the dead, this is what creation will look like, and it's told with symbolic imagery. So, Revelation 22 as a whole breaks down into three parts. We have that first vision 
of Eden 2.0, and I'm going to explain what that means in verses 1 to 5. Second, the promise of Jesus' coming in verses 6 to 15. And third, a charge to God's people, verses 16 to 21. Let's look at this first part, Eden 2.0, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we can't grasp the wonders to come in God's resurrected world. But John gives us a preview of new creation by drawing on elements of the old creation. That's why we hear some earthly language here. John sees a new Eden, replete with flowing water, trees bearing abundant fruit in every season, and, most importantly, man dwelling in fellowship with God without the disruption of sin. But this vision does not just describe Eden restored, but rather Eden advanced. It's going beyond Adam and Eve. There's no marriage in the new creation. There's no procreation in the new creation. And all of creation expands from a from a garden into a massive city. So this is man at his apex. This is man brought to his full glory. This is going beyond Adam to be like Adam 2.0, Jesus Christ. So the fruits of this tree serve not only to feed Adam and Eve, as in Genesis 1 in the old creation, but all the nations, bringing healing and redemption as far as the curse is found. Christ died on a tree, and his cross becomes the tree of new life, the, tr- the new tree of life, uh, that gives fruit that heals the nation. So there's gospel language here too. And John is purposefully, by the Holy Spirit, drawing on that to loop us back into the story. God is going to undo the curse of the fall and elevate mankind to a new level to glorify them, to bring them and reveal them as his sons of glory as told in Romans chapter 8. In the first garden, Adam sinned and brought about God's curse upon humanity and creation. But in the final garden city, the Lamb, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, by bearing the curse and destroying it through his resurrection and ascension, ushers in a new creation free from the curse. Day and night are part of the first creation, but in the new creation, the Lord himself will be everyone's light. He will illuminate mankind. The saints reign with Christ, fulfilling the mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and establish dominion over it. That's going to be brought to its completion as well. So this is the great hope that we're looking forward to. But again, with Revelation, we see this view of New Jerusalem as it is at the end of time. And then we actually come back in the next couple verses, in verses 6 to 15, to John's present time, back to the first century, where we're going to hear a dialogue. We're going to hear a chorus of voices and an interplay between what Jesus is saying, what the church is saying, what uh, angels are saying, and all these things. We're going to hear some more words from Jesus himself. So this is verses 6 to 15. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So John's vision ends with an exchange between himself and the messenger of Christ, or an angel. The messenger reiterates the theme of Revelation. Christ speaks true words and promises to his bride, the church, in her suffering. And his word of promise is this, I am coming soon. So Revelation reveals Christ, and keeping the words of the prophecy of the book means holding on to that revelation, holding on to Christ. Keeping the words is holding on to Christ. So John bows down in worship after hearing this, but the messenger angel rebukes him because he exists only as a fellow servant. The thesis of Revelation and perhaps the entirety of the Bible is this, worship God alone. And if Christ is to be worshipped, that means Christ is the one true God. The messenger identifies the Lord as the God of the spirits of the prophets. So God is telling one consistent story from beginning to end through the mouthpieces of his prophets. An angel tells Daniel to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end in Daniel 12.4. But here in Revelation 22, an angel tells John not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So seal up the book, Daniel, because the time is far off. But John, don't seal up the book because the time of my coming is near. What Daniel saw from afar will come to fruition in John's near future. And we hear that this near future features evildoers still doing evil, defiling, people still continually defile, the, the, the righteous pursue righteousness, the holier keep being holy. And Jesus says he will come soon, which indicates a near horizon for the fulfillment of these words. All of these elements are present in the tumultuous 40-year period between Pentecost and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. All of history is theological. God does not give us an abstract philosophy detached from the world, but rather new eyes to see history the way he sees it and the way that it actually is, to see the world from the perspective of heaven. Christ himself holds history together. He is the Alpha and the Omega, first and last, the beginning and the end. Revelation reveals that all of scripture, all of history, and all of creation itself serves as a revelation of his glory. The martyrs on earth walk in shame, covered in dirt, blood, and tears. But from heaven's perspective, they wear pristine robes, possess the tree of life, and gain entrance into a holy city. And the ones who persecute them, the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, the ones who cast them out of the city, of, of the earthly Jerusalem, are themselves going to be cast out of the heavenly Jerusalem. Just like Christ was cast out of the earthly Jerusalem, and but brings about the new Jerusalem. So those who persecuted Christ are cast out of the heavenly Jerusalem. And they're going to be shown the final recompense of their deeds. God's kingdom divides, and those who reject Christ forfeit all hope of redemption. So we see two horizons here. Jesus on the one level is saying, soon I'm going to come in judgment to destroy the temple. But there's also a further horizon. He's using this to 
point further into the future to the final judgment of all things, when Jesus returns in all of his glory with his angels in his resurrected glory to judge the living and the dead. So both of these are in view. The near judgment, the near horizon, the near fulfillment in John's future, but also the far uh, fulfillment that's also in our future. Both of these are kind of compacted into this final vision. And that brings us to these final words in verses 16 to 21, the last words of Jesus that we hear. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Revelation ends the way it began with Jesus testifying through a messenger to John in order to strengthen the churches. This is a letter, not a theological treatise, primarily. It's a personal address from Christ, the heir of David's throne who brings morning light into a dark world. And he's saying, I'm coming soon. The heavenly Adam waits for his bride who remains on earth, but still with his presence via the spirit. And the spirit groans along with the bride for the consummation of all things. And this invitation extends to all who thirst for the water of life. But there's a warning extended as well. Don't add to God's words or God will add a plague upon you. Don't take away from God's word or he will take away your inheritance. This is covenantal language. We don't just study revelation, but we hear it. And it summons us as the very words of God. And we must take action and obey. We must keep these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the end, God incarnate, Christ Jesus, creates a new heavens and a new earth. And the beginning of that transformation is when he comes Uh, in 70 AD to destroy the temple. But the consummation of that work is going to happen when he returns to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. So the establishment of the new Jerusalem of the church prefigures the establishment of the new creation itself. So the new Jerusalem is describing both the church in its present glory and also in its future glory. And also it's a microcosm of the transformed glory of new creation itself. It's working on multiple levels here. And we have a part to play in this. Right? The establishment of the new Jerusalem of the church prefigures the renewal of all things. And just as the early church longed for Christ to come to vindicate their deaths in the first century and judge Jerusalem, so we too await his second coming in which he vindicates us through the resurrection and vindicates all the martyrs through all of time. And he judges all of creation, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, not just Rome, but he judges all of creation and brings his final full and complete justice. But in the meantime, we have our marching orders. Go and make disciples of all nations. Bring the fruit of the tree of life in Christ for the healing of all peoples. That's the great commission. Bring the gospel because Christ has been given all authority and rule and reign. And because of that, we can go into the nations and announce that a king has risen, that God has placed his king on the throne at his right hand. But we also warn them of the judgment to come. Build the holy city of the church. Build on the prophets and apostles with precious jewels. Build upon that first century foundation and warn the world that if they reject Christ, they will find themselves outside the city gates. They will find themselves outside in the lake of fire if they reject Christ.
But if you drink from the water of life that never empties, if you fellowship with the saints in their reign, as you sit in the light of God and his lamb, we realize that revelation is not a fantasy. It's reality. It's not hyperbole. It's history. It's, it's a idealized realization of the church. It's showing us that that's what we do. We are a temple of living stones filled by the spirit, worshiping God, walking by his light and bringing his light to the nations through the preaching of the gospel. God sees the church as she truly is, not the hot mess that we see through human eyes, but through the eyes of faith, we can begin to see God's vision of the church, clothed in splendor, in white robes, and pure. The church has long used the Greek word amen, which means truly, to confirm the promises of God to his people. It's a cry for fortitude, faithfulness, and fearlessness in light of life's struggles. It's a word of hope that testifies to the faithful and true Jesus, that he loves us, that he's with us, and that he will bring us to the end that he has ordained, the glorious final consummation of all things depicted in symbolic earthly terms in Revelation 22. Revelation unveils the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not grace in the abstract, but grace that is personal, that is with us and for us. Grace that carries us through the fire to the final city. And what a fitting end to the word of God. What fitting final words from Jesus to his church, from John to us, from the spirit to the churches. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And what better words to end with? What better words to fill our minds with? That's what the goal of all of this is about. If you want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus and that that grace is with you. Amen. <laughs>